This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, every individual possesses unique fingerprints, making them invaluable in resolving homicide investigations. The year 1911 marked a significant milestone as U.S. courts officially recognized fingerprints as a dependable method of identification. Advancements continued into the 1970s when forensic professionals pioneered a novel technique, fingerprinting the deceased. This innovative approach incorporated chemical powders and photosensitive paper to capture prints. A pivotal moment occurred in 1978 as forensic experts in Miami, Florida, adopted this revolutionary method while probing a triple murder case at a local spa. At first, the crime appeared to be a robbery gone wrong. However, the examination by the forensic experts revealed that they were looking for somebody much closer to home. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 84 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Pittsburgh in 1945, John Mitchell's family relocated to Miami, Florida in 1951. He settled down with a woman named Linda, and they went on to have two children together, Jeannie and John. John's initial foray into the workforce led him to massage parlors, a field that during that period was highly contentious in Miami due to a mix of legitimate and dubious practices. While certain massage parlors offered credible therapeutic and relaxation services, others concealed illicit operations. In 1973, seeking fresh opportunities, John turned his attention toward launching a spa. He discovered an ideal rental location at 16720 Northeast 6th Avenue, nestled within a small suburban shopping center. Later that same year, John inaugurated World of Health Spas, targeting an affluent, health-conscious clientele by providing an extensive array of exercise equipment. Within the spa premises, an additional facet emerged, an affiliated karate school. John shared ownership of this school with Steve Beatty, a former state karate champion spanning the years 1962 to 1965. The spa and karate school were a massive success, affording John the opportunity to enlist a team of employees. This allowed him to dedicate more time to his family alongside his wife and children. In July 1978, he made a strategic move to hire a local cleaning company for the spa, reaching out to Carol Raduazzo, the owner. 
After tying the knot with airline mechanic Richard, Carol Raduazzo left her Cleveland origins behind and settled in Miami. The couple had two young children, aged five and six. Driven by a strong sense of self-sufficiency and a desire to provide more for their children, Carol embarked on her journey toward financial independence. In February 1978, Carol launched her own cleaning business, targeting commercial properties including businesses, offices, and apartments. Her determination bore fruit promptly, leading to the rapid growth of her venture within months. The success was substantial enough that Carol transitioned from being the sole cleaner to managing a team of cleaners, steering operations from behind the scenes. As her brother, Richard, recalled, it was just beginning to mushroom into something big. Around that same time, John contacted Carol, asking for her cleaning services at the spa. She had just taken on a new employee, Patricia Lynn Beck. Fresh out of Miramar High School at the age of 18, Patricia found herself residing on Shalimar Street with her parents, who operated a TV repair business. As the youngest member of her family, she had two older brothers, 28-year-old Jim and 26-year-old Bill. Tragedy had struck earlier when their eldest son, Robert, met his demise in a motorcycle accident back in 1970. Already engaged in a day job at a souvenir factory's production line, Patricia's evenings were dedicated to working alongside Carol in the cleaning business. This additional role in cleaning commercial properties provided her with extra income. While Patricia's long-term aspirations were still taking shape, her priority was to secure a financial foundation. As her neighbor Janet Wilson recalled, she had a good head on her shoulders. Her parents trusted her kids liked her. On July 23, 1978, Carol and Patricia faced their inaugural cleaning assignment at World of Health Spas. They were scheduled to arrive when the spa closed for the day at 4 o'clock. This same day was John's daughter's 12th birthday. The family were at home celebrating when, around 4 p.m., John departed to head to the spa. He had received a phone call from one of his workers, Richard O'Connell, telling him that Patricia and Carol needed the key to the closet of cleaning equipment. Assuring his wife that he'd be back in time for dinner, John embarked on the short drive of 10 blocks to the spa. However, as 5 o'clock arrived and passed without John's return, or any communication from him, concern grew among the family. John's wife decided to contact his father, John Sr., who resided on Country Club Drive, and asked him to visit the spa and check on his son. Responding promptly, John Sr. parked his car outside the spa. He turned off the ignition, approached the side door situated east of the main entrance, and reached for the handle. Illuminated by streetlights, the hallway revealed a disturbing sight. The crumpled body of his son, John, surrounded by a pool of blood. He had sustained seven gunshot wounds. John Sr. immediately summoned detectives, who arrived in a matter of minutes. Upon their arrival, they commenced a thorough search of the premises. Tracing a trail of blood from John's body, they noted that it led into the spa. 
It seemed that John, even after being shot, had attempted to escape and had made it to the door before succumbing to his injuries. Adjacent to his lifeless form, his car keys lay on the blood-soaked carpet. Pressing forward in their examination of the spa, the detectives discovered another body in the rear hallway. This body belonged to Patricia, who lay unclothed with her blood-stained clothing nearby. Her abdomen and neck bore multiple gunshot wounds. Detectives continued their meticulous search, uncertain if more victims remained to be found. In another room, located near a whirlpool machine, the detectives encountered Carol's lifeless body. A single gunshot wound to the head had tragically ended her life. Unlike Patricia, Carol's body remained clothed. The detectives were now faced with the challenge of investigating a triple murder, prompting them to swiftly secure the crime scene with bright yellow tape. The sight of detectives and their patrol vehicles, with lights flashing, attracted the attention of curious bystanders. A crowd gathered outside the spa, hoping to catch a glimpse of the unfolding spectacle. Amid this atmosphere, the detectives undertook the difficult task of locating Patricia and Carol's family members. One of the early onlookers was Steve Beatty, co-owner of the karate studio within the spa. He arrived in his black Lincoln Continental, brazenly driving through the police barrier in an attempt to enter the spa. However, given the tight security around the area, he was denied entry. Around 11 o'clock that night, Eddie Stone, a seasoned crime scene technician, was occupied with processing fingerprints related to several dayed burglaries. However, his work took a turn when he received a radio call. This call summoned him to the crime scene at World of Health Spa, prompting him to swiftly head over. Upon arrival, detectives instructed Stone to examine the lifeless body of Patricia. What he observed was intriguing. Patricia's legs exhibited an extraordinary ability to retain fingerprints, suggesting a potential lead. Employing chromacote cards, a technique that captures a mirrored image when pressed against a print, Stone initiated his investigation. Employing a technique involving metal filings and a magnetic brush, he proceeded to dust the area on Patricia's leg. This yielded positive results as he identified three prints on her lower calf, just above the ankle. Of the three prints, two proved to be unsuitable for analysis, leaving one in question. This single print appeared to originate from the middle finger of the left hand. Stone subsequently handed these fingerprints over to George Hertel, a fingerprint analysis expert from Metro, who embarked on a meticulous comparative study. While this analysis was underway, the crime scene investigation persisted. Crime scene specialist Dorothy Weimer joined the scene to capture photographs. During the search, the forensic team made a significant discovery. Bullet casings of varying calibers, specifically 25 and 357. This finding fueled speculation that the murders may have been committed by two killers. A police source commented, Bullet casings were scattered all over the place. There were at least two different sizes. It doesn't have the appearance of being a professional hit. 
Subsequent examinations at the medical examiner's office confirmed that John had been killed with a 25 caliber automatic gun, as well as a 357 Magnum revolver. Likewise, Patricia and Carol had been killed with a 357 Magnum revolver. Although initial assumptions suggested possible sexual assault due to Patricia's state of undress, autopsy results dispelled these suspicions. This revelation introduced a new line of thinking, a possibility that the crime scene had been manipulated to mislead detectives. Initially, detectives speculated that the triple murder might have resulted from a robbery gone wrong. The spa's office had been ransacked, but John never kept money on the premises. Among the questions that detectives were trying to answer was whether the murders were a grim afterthought to a robbery attempt. Another pressing question was whether the disarray in the office was orchestrated after the murders as a deliberate ploy to confound the detectives. If the latter were true, a disconcerting scenario emerged, suggesting that one or more of the victims had been specifically targeted. Detectives couldn't find anything missing in the spa, leaving them perplexed by the motivation. As one police source commented, robbery, drugs, sex, who knows at this point? Amid the meticulous gathering and analysis of evidence from the crime scene, the detectives commenced their rounds of conversations with those close to John, Patricia, and Carol. Their aim was to try and uncover any potential enemies or anyone harboring ill intentions toward the victims. However, the investigation encountered an unexpected roadblock. Everyone acquainted with the trio resoundingly claimed that none of them had a single enemy. Steve Beattie, a key figure in the unfolding drama, proactively reached out to the police, offering his assistance in the probe. He recounted his whereabouts on the day of the triple murder, maintaining that he left the spa about 1.30 p.m. and only returned at 9.30 p.m. upon hearing about the tragic events. In another brief interview the next day, Beattie said the same thing, that he had left the spa about 1.30 p.m. Detectives were satisfied with Beatty's timeline, but they soon received a tip from a man washing his clothes in a laundromat close to the spa on the evening of the murders. He explained that around 5 p.m. he saw two men leaving the spa, one with dark hair and one with light hair. The witness's suspicion arose from the fact that he knew the spa was closed at the time. The witness recorded the car's description and part of the license plate. It was a Lincoln Continental, the very car driven by Steve Beattie. Armed with this fresh account from an eyewitness, detectives promptly summoned Beattie for further questioning at the Public Safety Department headquarters. Seated across from Detective Charles Atropalek, Beattie was informed that he was a potential suspect in the triple murder. Afterward, Detective Zatropalek launched into his questioning, asking Beattie, the last time you were at the spa was at 1 or 2 p.m.? Beatty's initial response was a straightforward, yeah. However, his recollection then shifted as he added, oh, wait a minute, I returned at about 5 o'clock, I must have forgot. This time around, Beatty supplied detectives with an altered version of events. 
He claimed that after leaving the spa at 1.30 p.m., he had returned for five minutes at around 5 p.m. Interestingly, he said he never encountered John, Patricia, or Carol at the spa during his second visit. According to Beatty, he spent the entire day and evening with his friend, Richard Settlemeyer, with whom he taught karate. Richard corroborated Beatty's account when he was brought in for questioning. He confirmed that after they left the spa at 1.30 p.m., they traveled to Hallover Beach for a while. Here, they met up with their friend, Joe Marciano. After some time there, they proceeded to 83rd Street Beach. Richard said that he and Beatty dropped off Joe, returning to the spa around 4.30 p.m. so that Beatty could get a telephone number for his wife. They spent five or ten minutes inside before they left again. He told detectives he didn't hear any shots, nor did he see any bodies. From here, Beatty and Richard said they returned to Beatty's home in Hollywood, changed, and then went out for dinner. Richard described an evening spent bar hopping with Beatty. Detectives had lifted fingerprints from Patricia's body and requested prints from Beatty and Richard as suspicions grew. Fingerprint expert Hertel compared these prints and was shocked to confirm a match with Beatty's. The correspondence between the prints was astonishing, with 23 matching points exceeding the FBI's 8 to 12 point standard. On July 26, Beatty was arrested. The groundbreaking use of fingerprint evidence marked an unprecedented milestone in Dade County's criminal history, heralding a new era of forensic methodology. The method's effectiveness was attributed to the controlled conditions within the locker room where Patricia's lifeless body was discovered. Frank Leapley, supervisor of the latent print section at the FBI headquarters in Washington, commented, The time element is a big factor. The elements have an adverse effect on any latent print, wherever it is found. A dry area is always better than a steamy area. When Beatty was brought in to be questioned again, he said he had never met Patricia, never talked to her, and had never even seen her. Despite Beatty's insistence that he had no connection with Patricia, the irrefutable match and fingerprints sealed his fate with three murder charges. While securing their prime suspect, detectives remained vigilant in exploring the possibility of an accomplice. The crime scene and autopsies had shown that two guns were used in the murders, indicating a potential second shooter. As the primary suspect remained in custody, detectives were still trying to figure out a motivation. They zeroed in on Beatty's residence, hoping to unearth any signs of discord between him and John, who detectives believed was the targeted victim. Beatty's pregnant wife, Donna, was at home with her 10-year-old daughter from a previous relationship when the search warrant was executed. Detectives were searching for evidence, in particular the murder weapon or any bloody items of clothing. In a closet in his bedroom, they came across a pair of sandals with blood spots on them. Steve Beatty originated from Scotland, but relocated to Canada when he was seven years old accompanied by his father, who was a professional fighter. Growing up in Toronto, he later directed his ambitions toward Miami during the early 1960s. 
With a height of 5 feet 10 inches and a weight of 180 pounds, he found his niche in the realm of karate. Attaining a fifth-degree black belt in karate, Beattie swiftly gained renown throughout Miami for his reputation as one of the most resilient individuals in the city. His dominance in the field was further solidified by his consecutive titles as the state karate champion from 1962 to 1965. By day, Beattie shared his karate expertise at a studio he co-owned with John. By night, he assumed the role of a bouncer at multiple Miami nightclubs, including Castaways, The Newport, Honey for the Bears, and Big Daddies. Amidst these endeavors, Beattie found himself facing legal troubles on multiple occasions. In 1962, he was confined to jail for a month due to auto theft. In 1967, he was arrested and faced charges relating to assault and battery. Two years later, he was charged with assault, battery, and rape. Then, in 1975, he was apprehended and charged with aggravated battery. Although a significant portion of these charges were ultimately dropped, save for the auto theft conviction, the rest dissipated due to various circumstances. In one instance, the complainant opted not to pursue charges, while the state attorney's office cited insufficient evidence in the rape case. In November 1975, Tropic Magazine, a publication of the Miami Herald, featured a cover story on the bouncers working within Miami's vibrant nightclub scene. Among the individuals highlighted was Beattie, who had devoted over 15 years to his role as bouncer and had even safeguarded numerous visiting celebrities during his tenure as a bodyguard. Notable names he had protected included Anne Margaret and Elvis Presley. Beatty's face adorned the magazine cover, accompanied by a probing question, Is he the toughest man in town? In the magazine, Beatty described himself as a tough guy supreme. With an air of confidence, he stated, I am not a bouncer. I don't like that word. It sounds like a pug, and I am not a pug. I'm a diplomat. I use psychology. I'll take insults, whatever you give me. At the most, I'll hug a guy, carry him out. I'm a huggy bear. It's stupid to fight, and it's bad for business. Besides, you can get hurt. I don't care how big you are. No one is bigger than a gun. Yet, despite his insistence on nonviolence, Beatty proceeded to recount certain instances that deviated from the peaceful demeanor he presented. He recounted an episode during his tenure at the Castaways in Miami Beach, where he confronted a group of rowdy Texans. According to Beatty, one of these men required medical attention after Beatty had taught him a little respect. Although the magazine celebrated his contributions, individuals familiar with Beatty's character depicted him as a cruel bully. Johnny Pachivas, who had a second-degree black belt and ran his own martial arts school, candidly expressed his disapproval. I didn't like his behavior. He hurt people intentionally. He beat up little people in bars. I don't teach that. Another local unnamed karate instructor said, He made a lot of enemies. In bars, he was notorious for pushing a guy's girlfriend to start a fight with the guy. A neighbor of Beatty recalled when his young son was riding his tricycle that was making a clicking sound. He described how the noise irritated Beatty so much 
He burst out the front door and began berating the child. The man ran over and shouted at Beatty to leave his son alone, which angered him even more and resulted in him threatening the man. While detectives continued searching for a motive for the triple murder, James Babb, a police spokesperson, said, As far as we know, there doesn't appear to be any narcotics involvement or any other kind of organized crime activity such as loan sharking or prostitution. He further added that robbery had been ruled out as a motivation, as well as embezzlement and extortion. They were working on the theory that John was targeted by Beatty and Patricia and Carol were collateral damage, simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. As the case continued to unravel, however, a new potential motive emerged. Eight months before the murders, Beatty took out a $100,000 life insurance policy on John's life. The application was made on November 21st, and put in force on February 3rd. John, likewise, had a similar policy in Beatty's name. If one of them died, then the other would be the beneficiary. Detectives still believed that a second person was involved. That person was Richard Settlemayer, who provided Beatty with an alibi. Richard was brought in for further questioning on July 28th. He stuck to the same alibi he had earlier provided for Beatty that Beatty hadn't been out of his sight the entire day and, therefore, could not have committed the murders. There wasn't enough evidence to connect Richard to the triple murder, so he was released without charge. Following this interview, however, Richard fled from Miami to Canada, but eventually returned. He commented that the shootings scared the hell out of me and said that detectives had told him sooner or later they were going to connect him to the murders. Steve Beatty was ordered to be held without bail and was asked by the state to provide samples of his hair, blood, and saliva. On August 8th, Beatty's defense attorney, Erwin Block, requested permission to be withdrawn from the case, and Judge David Levy granted his request. Attorney Jack Attias requested to be co-counsel along with attorney Robert Josephsberg for the upcoming trial, scheduled for October. Assistant State Attorney Lance Stetzler immediately objected, saying Attias had business transactions with Beatty. He feared Attias would plead a client-attorney relationship with Beatty if he was allowed to be co-counsel. The investigation uncovered that Attias had advised the World Health Spa partners on various business matters, including the $100,000 insurance policy that John and Beatty had. Judge Levy agreed and initially turned down Attias's request. However, it was later approved. In September, defense attorney Joseph Sberg filed a motion to dismiss the indictment, accusing the prosecution of not providing him with witnesses and evidence against his client. He argued that because of the prosecution's delays, he had not been able to conduct his own investigation of the case. Judge Levy denied the motion, but asked Assistant State Attorney Jim Woodard to comply as quickly as possible. Then, in January, Assistant State Attorney Woodard announced that if Beatty were convicted, he would be seeking the death penalty.
The triple murder trial kicked off on January 8, 1979. In the opening statements, Assistant State Attorney Woodard underscored Steve Beatty's inconsistent statements to detectives. He emphasized that the state's pivotal evidence was three fingerprints taken from the fine, soft, freshly shaved leg of Patricia Lynn Beck. He revealed that these fingerprints had been positively matched to Beatty. Assistant State Attorney Woodard further disclosed that blood and human tissue matter found on Beatty's sandals were in alignment with Patricia's blood. Although the prosecution refrained from proposing a concrete motive, their theory revolved around John being the primary target. According to their perspective, Beatty had allegedly killed John. Subsequently, Patricia and Carol were silenced because they witnessed the crime and could potentially identify the perpetrator. Beatty's defense team postponed their opening statements until after the conclusion of the state's presentation. The trial's first witness was Richard O'Connell, a spa employee. He testified that when he left around 4.15 p.m., John, Patricia, and Carol were still at the spa. However, during cross-examination, Richard admitted that there were eight other individuals in the vicinity shortly before closing, and he couldn't confirm if any of them had left. Another witness, Joe Marciano, who had been with Beatty and Richard on the day of the murders, took the stand. He informed the jury that he had seen Beatty at the spa around 4 p.m. Joe's girlfriend, Julie Massung, corroborated this, testifying that she had seen Beatty, Joe, and Richard at Hallover Beach in the afternoon of the murders. She stated they left the beach around 2.30 p.m. However, the defense revealed an October deposition in which Julie had originally stated they left the beach around 4 p.m. It was alleged that Julie had altered her testimony to align with other prosecution witnesses suggesting a significant time discrepancy that could impact the case. The prosecution contended the murders had happened about 4.15 p.m., but if Beatty was at the beach at 4 p.m., then he could not have been the killer. Assistant State Attorney Stetzler then presented an amended copy of Julie's October deposition, demonstrating that she had initially written 2.30 p.m. and later corrected it to 4 p.m., the defense protested, claiming they had never received this corrected version and called for a mistrial. As per pretrial agreements, all statements were to be shared between the prosecution and the defense. The judge considered the mistrial request when Beatty informed his defense team of his desire to proceed with the trial, rather than risk a retrial in case the mistrial was granted. The testimony proceeded featuring various forensic experts and crime scene specialists, including Dorothy Weimer. Weimer presented over 60 pieces of evidence gathered from the crime scene, encompassing shells and casings from the two murder weapons. During her testimony, Weimer encountered a stumbling block when she initially mentioned that a bullet had pierced through a crumpled, blood-streaked yellow t-shirt found near Patricia. However, upon the presentation of the t-shirt in court, she promptly corrected herself, confirming that no bullet had penetrated it. Defense attorney Josephsburg seized upon this discrepancy, posing the question, The crime lab makes errors, don't they? Weimer replied, I made an error, I corrected myself. The court also received testimony from fingerprint technician Eddie Stone, 
who detailed how he lifted a fingerprint from Patricia's body that was subsequently linked to Beatty. He stated, Her legs appeared to be clean and dry. It hadn't been too long since she had shaved them. It was smooth, wrinkle-free skin. All my experience would indicate she was ideal for body printing. During cross-examination by defense attorney Josephsburg, Stone admitted that this was the first instance of a body print being introduced as evidence in a court of law. Josephsburg then referred to an article co-authored by Stone in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. The article deemed the technique experimental. The defense attorney also raised questions about two books, one authored by a forensic scientist and another stemming from the FBI crime labs, which debated the viability of extracting identifiable fingerprints from human skin. Stone responded that he hadn't read either of these works. The trial then focused on a potential motivation, with Joseph Svoboda, an assistant vice president of Fidelity Bankers Life Insurance Company, telling the jury about the life insurance policy Beatty had out on John. Laura Wright, John's sister-in-law, hinted at bad blood between John and Beatty. She told the jury, John said he was losing business at night and that Steve was rude to the customers, especially the women. She explained that a few weeks before John, Patricia, and Carol were killed, John had fired Beatty as night manager at the spa. While Beatty still ran his karate studio from inside the spa, he was no longer entrusted to serve as the night manager at the spa. However, she acknowledged that despite this, John and Beatty seemed friendly toward one another. Detectives Charles Atropolic testified next about the inconsistencies within Beatty's statements to detectives. He told them that on his third interview, he admitted for the first time that he had returned to the spa at about 4 p.m. The detective said, it just came out by itself. He also added that while being questioned, Beatty claimed that he was unaware whether the life insurance policy on John's life was in effect at the time of the murders. In an effort to prove that the murders were committed by Beatty, the prosecution called on crime lab serology specialist George Borgie, who testified about the sandals found in Beatty's home. He said that three nickel-sized spots of dried blood on the sandals matched the blood of Patricia. According to the specialist, the tests also indicated that the blood type was not the same as Beatty's. He testified there was only a faint trace of blood on the bottom of the soles. He stated, There was not enough to test, as it apparently had been rubbed off by walking. Under cross-examination by defense attorney Josephsburg, Beatty said there was no way of telling how long the bloody matter had been on the sandals. Josephsburg also queried Borgie about other methods he could have used to examine the blood. Borgie acknowledged that he could have used at least four other methods to match blood samples, but he didn't use them. Borgie's testimony was bolstered by Dr. Ronald Wright, Dade County's chief medical examiner. He confirmed that a fragment of flesh found on Beatty's sandals had come from the body of Patricia. He testified, a large portion of neck skin was missing from the body. It was blown away by the force of the bullet. The explosive effect blew it onto the side of the sandal sole with great force. 
Dr. Wright did not believe that the fragment of flesh could have gotten there by walking through the crime scene. It had to have been blown there by the force of a bullet. He said that the fragments would have been wet for about 30 minutes and would have only been adhesive during that time. Based on the position of Patricia's body and the gunshot wounds, the medical examiner said the killer most likely stood above her and shot her once in the abdomen and then once in the head. When he was asked by Assistant State Attorney Woodard how long Patricia may have lived after being shot in the abdomen, he responded, perhaps for a gasp or two. The trial's most anticipated moment unfolded with the testimonies of independent fingerprint expert John Tyler and FBI supervisory fingerprint specialist Robert Hazen. Both experts unequivocally affirmed that the fingerprint extracted from Patricia's body could be attributed to only one individual, Stephen Beatty. Hazen gave the jury a quick course in the science of fingerprinting before telling them, you cannot you will not. You will never duplicate one fingerprint with that of any other individual. During cross-examination led by defense attorney Josephsburg, Hazen faced a probing question about his history of presenting evidence in court. With unwavering confidence, Hazen responded, I have never made a mistake in presenting evidence in court. Both Tyler and Hazen emphasized to the jury that the case marked the inaugural instance of a body print being successfully introduced as evidence in court. While conceding that the technique for lifting latent prints from a body remained in its experimental phase, the experts left no room for uncertainty. The fingerprint discovered on Patricia undeniably matched Beatty's. The spotlight turned toward the defense's crucial witness, expected to be Richard Stettelmeyer. However, a twist emerged as he had been arrested and charged with perjury due to allegations that he had lied during a pretrial hearing. Richard had falsely claimed that detectives had never requested his fingerprints, an assertion that was proven to be untrue. Following his arrest, he was subsequently released on his own recognizance, setting the stage for his testimony. During opening statements, defense attorney Attias told the jury that Beatty is not a violent person. He argued that the defense didn't know what took place inside the spa that resulted in the triple murder, but said, The evidence will show that our client did not commit these acts. Defense attorney Attias went on to say that they had a witness who had entered the spa at 6.10 p.m. on the night of the murders. The witness claimed that he neither saw John, Patricia, or Carol, nor did he see any of their cars in the parking lot. That witness, Peter Longcope, was the first to testify for the defense. He recounted that he walked into the World of Health Spa at some point between 6 and 6.30 p.m. on the night of the murders. Peter explained that he entered through the main door, and when he found it empty, he proceeded through the building down a hallway to a men's exercise room. Peter said that he then left the building, went out to his car, and returned to get a brochure. Peter was shown photographs of the victim's cars, as well as Beatty's Lincoln Continental, but said he saw none of them at the spa that evening. His testimony continued as he affirmed never having met Steve Beatty, adding, except for what I read in the newspapers, and I don't believe everything I read in the newspapers. 
According to Peter, he had contacted detectives about being in the spa that night and seeing no bodies and no evidence of a triple murder. However, despite this, he was never interviewed. His testimony was critical because the prosecution was committed to establishing that the murders occurred in the early evening, around 4.15 p.m. Under cross-examination, Assistant State Attorney Woodard sought to show that Peter had indeed gone to the spa, but on the day before the murders. In a deposition he had given before the trial, he said it was on a Saturday he was in the spa, and the murders took place on a Sunday. On the witness stand, he stuck to his testimony, stating, It has to be Sunday. It has to be the 23rd. According to Peter, he worked six days a week and went to the spa on his day off, a Sunday. He further said he knew it was Sunday and knew the time because when he returned home, Star Trek was on the television. Following his testimony, the defense called Robert Kravitz, a friend of Beatty and former karate student, to the witness stand. He provided an alternate account to the prosecution's eyewitness testimony, stating that he had seen Beatty at Hallover Beach between 3.30 and 4 p.m. The defense then introduced its own forensic evidence. A piece of gum, notably well-chewed, had been discovered under Patricia's body at the crime scene. Detectives had sought to link this gum to Beatty, who was known for his gum-chewing habit, in an effort to strengthen the connection between him and the murders. However, Kenneth Eady, a chemist from the Public Safety Department, testified he had conducted 25 tests on the gum, ultimately identifying it as a piece of carefree sugarless gum. Defense attorney Joseph Berg argued that this finding contradicted Beatty's preference for chiclets gum. Paul Dolman, a criminologist specializing in hair analysis for the PSD, took the stand next. He stated that while some strands of hair found on Patricia's body could have been Beatty's, his tests yielded inconclusive results. The defense then again called fingerprint specialist George Hurdle to the stand aiming to highlight that the prosecution had overlooked 170 other prints lifted from the spa. Nevertheless, the focus swiftly returned to the vital fingerprint as a blow-up of the print was presented in court. Hertel compared this enlarged print to a blown-up version of Beatty's fingerprint. Evidently, the defense's strategy was to sow as much doubt as possible regarding the prosecution's evidence. Richard Settlemeyer was the next witness for the defense, reiterating the same account he had previously shared with detectives. The prosecution challenged him for fleeing to Canada, suggesting his involvement as an accomplice in the triple murder alongside Beatty. While they continued to suspect Richard's involvement, they lacked sufficient evidence to press charges. Richard told the jury that detectives had seemingly threatened him during his pre-departure interview, stating, they said that sooner or later, Beatty was going to crack and talk and that I was going down with them. They said, think about it. One night we'll come in with a white slip of paper, an arrest warrant, and arrest me for accomplice to first-degree murder. Following Richard's testimony, it was announced that Steve Beatty would be testifying on his own behalf. His voice was steady as he staunchly denied the triple murder, telling the jury, I could not and I would not shoot anyone. Assistant State Attorney Woodard questioned Beatty about John's life insurance policy, revealing another agreement the men had. 
If John were to die, Beattie could purchase the spa for $50,000. Beattie maintained that the insurance policies were John's idea and said that the buyout agreement was voided when Beattie was fired as a spa manager. Assistant State Attorney Woodard then told Beattie that the only thing standing between him and $100,000 was the jury's verdict. Beattie maintained he didn't know the policy was valid, stating, I know it now, but at the time of the murders, I did not know that. I swear, I did not know it. At no time did I ever know that policy was valid. He then added, I made that kind of money with the karate school and promoting kickboxing matches. I wouldn't kill John for it. He was my friend, my good friend. I didn't need to kill my partner for the money. According to Beattie, the fingerprint found on Patricia's leg simply wasn't his. He also argued that the sandals found in his home weren't his either, but didn't disclose who they belonged to if not him. While Beattie admitted to possessing a handgun, he said it was a 32 caliber weapon that had been stolen in January, seven months before the murders. He also mentioned on the witness stand that he had once told police about John's involvement in the massage parlor industry. He had also told them of a former business partner of John's who was found murdered in the trunk of the car. However, he accused them of not following up on these leads. He maintained the alibi he had provided detectives was accurate, that he had been with Richard all day and therefore couldn't have committed the murders. While Beatty was cross-examined by Assistant State Attorney Woodard, it was suggested that he was angry because he had been fired by John as night manager. He said that Beatty's contract for 25% of the net profits was canceled, and he was angry. After Beatty testified, he made a dramatic and unusual move against the advice of his defense team. He said that he was innocent, but was going for all or nothing, meaning he either wanted the jury to acquit him or find him guilty of first-degree murder. This meant the jury could not convict him of any lesser charge, such as second- or third-degree murder or manslaughter. Beatty's decision was not unprecedented, but it was unusual. Such a decision is usually made when a defendant and his team do not believe the prosecution presented an airtight case for conviction. After a fortnight of testimonies, the trial reached its conclusion. During closing arguments, Assistant State Attorney Stetzler leveled his finger at Beatty and delivered his statement. If he's acquitted, $100,000 goes into his pocket the moment he walks out the door, with the same smile from putting one over on you. Assistant State Attorney Woodard underscored the fingerprint evidence in his address to the jury. Those fingerprints are the one thing that ties Steve Beatty without a doubt to this case. All the other 200 exhibits don't prove Steve Beatty is a murderer, but they are corroborative of that fact. Defense attorney Atias took a different stance, asserting that the entire prosecution's case rested solely on circumstantial evidence. He emphasized, it doesn't fly, while accusing the prosecution of overzealousness by exclusively focusing on Beatty as the perpetrator, overlooking other potential suspects. With these arguments in mind, the jury entered deliberation. After only half an hour, they requested to review the fingerprints in their chamber. Less than three hours later, they returned with their verdict. 
Steve Beatty displayed no emotion. He maintained a steady, unflinching gaze. He was found guilty of all three counts of first-degree murder. The jury then convened to decide between recommending life imprisonment or the death penalty. Outside the courtroom, John's father expressed his belief that Beattie deserved death for the triple murder, stating to the Miami News, There are some cases which deserve the death penalty. In this case, I would say yes. Prior to the jury's deliberation on Beattie's fate, he conveyed to Judge Levy, I would prefer to go to the electric chair than spend the rest of my life in jail. The jury acceded to his preference and opted for the death penalty. However, the final decision lay with Judge Levy. Before that decision, Beatty was granted the opportunity to speak. In a composed, yet firm voice, he stated, I bear no bitterness, no hard feelings or hatred towards anyone, not the jury, not the prosecutors, not to you, Your Honor. I'm ready now. May my final judgment be with God. That's all I have to say. Judge Levy responded, Mr. Beatty, I agree with you. The ultimate judgment is beyond all of us. Subsequently, Steve Beatty was sentenced to death. After a solitary day on death row, Beatty's perspective shifted, prompting his defense team to file a motion to commute his death sentence to life imprisonment. They aimed for a new trial, yet Judge Levy rejected the request. On August 9, 1981, around 10.58 a.m., a prison guard conducted routine checks on the inmates on Rayford's death row. Upon reaching Steve Beatty's cell, he discovered him partially unclothed and motionless on his bunk. He was pronounced dead at 11 a.m., and it was discovered that he had overdosed on drugs. The exact substances remained undisclosed by the prison, but it was confirmed that Beatty had taken his own life. Homicide Sergeant David Rivers remarked, It's no great loss. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please... Be safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.